Welcome back to the Pre-Construction Podcast. As we come out of Q1 2022 and are just getting to grips with price volatility and COVID-19, Mr. Putin decides to go nuts and invade Ukraine. Now, from speaking with construction leaders this week, this looks like it's going to cause materials and energy price hikes and more supply chain disruption. Uh, Now, if you want to find out more data on this, I recently put a great post on LinkedIn from the Global Construction Review. I recommend going having a look at it. But like everything, listen, we'll get through this. Um, Anyway, back to today's guest. He is the LA, Seattle and San Francisco pre-construction lead for Skanska. His name is Alan Dunbar. He is a super smart pre-construction disruptor who discusses everything from growing up in Glasgow, leading innovation within Skanska, pre-construction data, and how they have built an an incredible in-house data tool and how it's winning business with clients. Hey folks, before we hear from Alan Dunbar, I just want to give a massive shout out to our friends and partners over at Advancing Pre-Construction. Now, if anybody doesn't know what Advancing Pre-Construction is, it is the largest gathering of pre-construction and estimating professionals in the US. They are holding an event in Vegas from June 13th to June 15th. Um, I hope to meet you there. What they're going to be discussing is the we're going to be covering supply chain disruption, estimating, hiring of staff, design coordination, subcontractor ma- management, and much, much more. To find out more information, simply go to their website. You can Google Advancing Pre-Construction. Uh, but more importantly, because we've partnered with Advancing Pre-Construction to get a 10% discount on any of your tickets, just simply at checkout, quote the discount code PODCAST10. That's simply PODCAST, the number 10, without any spaces. Um, now, straight over to Alan. Alan Dunbar, welcome to the Pre-Construction Podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Delighted to have you. Um, for anybody who doesn't know Alan, he is he's sitting in Seattle, um, 16, 16 years with Skanska, Senior Vice President uh, and Pre-Construction Lead for the, the West Coast. Is that right? Yeah, I, I have Seattle, Los Angeles and San Francisco. I also have, lead our technology and pre-construction group for um, or pre-con group. Wonderful. Well, we had uh, two of your your compadres on, um, Will Center and Mr. Stouthammer. So looking forward to get into that in more detail. Before we do that, Alan, from the accent, I think everyone can can, can just about get it. Uh, it all started back in Glasgow. Um, what was it like growing up in Glasgow and then obviously going and doing your, your QS degree? Glasgow, uh, Glasgow is a beautiful city. Um, I think it's a little bit misunderstood. It always gets a bad rep in comparison to Edinburgh, but I think it's got a little bit more character than Edinburgh. The people are just amazing. Um, they, they will tell you what's on their mind and they've just got a wicked sense of humour. So it, it's a great place to grow up. Um, we actually lived in South Africa for three years growing up. My dad was an electrical engineer and got an opportunity to go down there and build the grid um, down there. So we got an opportunity to see a little bit of the world back in the 70s. Um, grew up in a little village just outside Glasgow, about 4,000 folks, every day knew every day. Um, and then did a Bachelor of Science in Quantity Surveying at Glasgow Tech. Uh, 
Um, for those who don't know, quantity surveillance, basically the financial and legal side of the construction industry. So math had always been pretty simple to me, it always came easy to me, um, and it just seemed to probably going to be the right fit for me. Brilliant. Uh, and was the construction aspect, obviously mask, or sorry, maths, you could have went into to a number of things with, with good maths, physics, whatever it may be. What, what kind of draw you to the construction industry? Growing up, my, my dad used to buy uh, flats or what were known as condos over, over here, and um, he would renovate them and rent them out. And I was always getting dragged along to, to do work, free work for him. Um, and I just get interested in it. And it, it just seemed to hit, hit the spot. And, and when I went to college, uh, the year I entered, the economy was just booming. Everybody was coming out, great salaries, great, great jobs. And when I graduated in 93, it was the bottom of a recession. And I think four of us got jobs in wow. college. So it completely flipped on us. Um, and it was, a, you know, I think my first job with a local construction company was paying me £5,000 a week. Which, or a year, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Seven and a half thousand dollars a year, which was Wow. Nothing. That's amazing, isn't it? And was it just a case of listen? I need to get in here, get some experience, get me feet, get me feet dirty, and, and find out what this is all about. Yeah, I, I was lucky that one of my neighbours was a building surveyor, um, who so basically an architect who does renovation work, and he hooked me up with a construction firm in Glasgow, a guy who had kind of built the company from ground up, and the guy gave me a job all through college, and I, he gave me a job. When I graduated, just so I had a job, and his, what he told me is the only reason he was giving me a job was to go find another job. Um, so it was it was really good. He he um, he believed that you needed two mentors in your professional life. You needed someone to teach you the professional side of the of your profession, and someone else to tell you how to play the game. And he said, I can tell you how to play the game, but you need to go and learn the professional side of it. So it was, it was great advice. And um, I, it, worked, it worked out really well. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, you were you were lucky. Um, everyone can, especially beginning, everyone needs that help in hand. Um, and it doesn't have to be a direct mentor that's going to mentor you for ten or fifteen years, but just that that subtle bit of advice to to go on, whether it be going get experience, site experience, get into the office. Um, the the whole quantity surveying thing. Um, it's kind of a lot of obviously my listeners and our listeners in the pre construction podcast are Americans. They've come through a construction management degree, a civil electrical mechanical degree. They don't understand that, that well, not that they don't understand, but they, they've never had experienced a purely quantity surveying degree. Just give us a quick high-level overview of, of how different it is to like a construction management degree in, in the US. Certainly, a lot of focus on, obviously, cost control. Um, how you set up um, a bill of quantities so that people can price them, because primarily at that time, Work would get procured through um, through contractors being given a bill of quantities, so a list of all the items in the project and quantities along alongside them, and you go through and put rates against each of each of them, and that would be your um, that would be your offer to the client, and ultimately it would all get remeasured um, during the project to make sure it was right. So it was, it was a fair 
process for everybody. Um, and so there was a lot of diligence and teaching on how to prepare these bills of quantities um, and a lot of rigor in the process. Um, you'd have construction classes, um, law classes on, con on contract law um, and basic economic classes as well. So um, a lot more focused on the kind of, as I said, the process, the rigor that goes into um, setting up a project financially. Brilliant. Yeah, and it's slightly different. I mean, they, they obviously touch on on the estimating and pre-construction in their during their construction management degree, but it's to me there's not enough focus on it, and hence the reason that there's such a lack of good talent in in the in the U.S. market. Um, I, I think they've got to change the education system in some way um, to try and get something more focused towards pre-construction and estimating because. As you and, and loads of my guests, it is going to be the, the, the place where the single most important decisions are made within a project. Um, so I, I just hope that they, they address that. So you've qualified, quantity surveyor, um, ready to rock and roll, go and earn some money, um, you earn seven and a half thousand a year. You, you, you kind of spent some time then, obviously South Africa in, in the UK. Um, what about 2006? What brings you to the US? Yeah, um, I had a, you know, I think my parents always encouraged me to go see the world. Um, they kind of set up, you know, when we went to Africa that it was okay to, to go see the world, to, to leave a, the extended family. Um, and I'd always seen America as, as a great, you know, a great place. I'd always seen it on TV, right? It was always looking really great. Um, and there was a bunch of QS firms in the US um, who advertised for um, quantities of years and I applied. And it was funny, my, one of my close college buddies actually got offered the job. Right. And he, he didn't want to move. He decided he, he didn't have the bottle to, to <laughs> leave. He got cold uh, feet. He didn't want to leave. Yeah, he got cold feet. Yeah. And so I got offered the job. I could have been in Phoenix, Honolulu, Las Vegas or Seattle, and I chose Seattle. And I, I started having cold feet, and my dad said to me, which is probably some of the best advice I've ever received, he said, go give it a year, son. He said, go, go try it. Um, don't ever look back and say you never tried it. And if it doesn't work out, come on back. Your, your, your buddies will still be on the same bar stools. They'll just see you as having had a vacation in the US for a year. But yeah. don't look back in 20 years and say, I wish I'd tried. And I think that was... I think sometimes you need a little bit of a helping hand just to push you over the edge. Yeah. Um, and that's that's what I needed at the time. And it was, I look back and say that was brilliant advice. And, and, and he hasn't seen you since? Or he ha you haven't been back, <laughs> yeah. haven't been back since? <laughs> yeah, I haven't been back for three years at the moment. But. Very good. No, but as a perfect example, it was probably reassurance you need. You probably knew it was the right thing to do. But I mean, what age would you have been back then? You were still still a young man. Yeah, I was 26 when I came over. Yeah, um, yeah. So big I, move. I mean, I always think you always think of the generations that have gone past, especially Irish, even from the UK. They they all went to the East Coast. Like it's a, it just seems a little bit of an easier move to New York, Boston, even Chicago's not a million miles away, but Seattle, San Fran, LA. It's like it's almost it's the same again. If you know what I mean, coming coming seven hours. So. Um, Fair play to you for, for taking that chance. 
Yeah, certainly it's further, but also the people are different. I think because you've had so many um, immigrants on the East Coast, it's the first port of call and you, you tend to stay where you land, you know, pretty nearby. Um, then there's the personalities are, are, and the characters are an awful lot more similar to the Irish, the Scottish, the Italians. Um, so you, there are an awful lot more direct um, and you know that's one thing you got to learn when you're out. In the, when I came to the West Coast, is I had to learn to back down a little bit and not be so direct. Yeah, yeah. And it's I mean being able to pick that up, it's it's a skill in itself. And I remember we we came from before we got to New York, we came from Perth, Australia, and Perth, Australia is like so secluded it's like an outback town um where everything's just relaxed taking it easy relationships let's not let, let's not get uh let's get not not get tied up in the, the particulars um but then going from new york it was like chalk and cheese um and it is it's, it's different um and and is that what drew, drew you to seattle other than the other options honolulu or, or were you given advice on that as well i i'd seen a tv program about vancouver bc um, which looked just awesome. And I can't remember, it was a BBC Two program. I can't remember the name of the travel program, but it, you know, it was all about the, um, the city, the, the music, the lifestyle. And it, it just attracted me. Brilliant. And, and Seattle was the closest, closest I could get to it. Brilliant, brilliant, great. And now it's 16, I take it you've been there for 16 years, now you haven't moved? 24 years this year. Wow. Uh, wow. Um, yeah. So, so give me an idea. You've obviously you, a young Scottish guy coming over. Um, the world's your oyster. You're good, and you, you get your 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 break at Skanska. Um, tell me about that kind of evolution of Alan Dunbar, uh, like climbing the ladder and climbing the ladder quite quickly. What was that like, and how did Skanska facilitate that? How did they allow you to grow so fast and so so quickly? Well, I, I, when I first came over, I, I joined Davis um, Rider Hunt um, for three years, and then I was with Davis Langdon for um, four years. And I had a lot of opportunity to work on some great projects, the um, Seattle Mariners Stadium, Safeco Field. I worked on that for a year or so. Um, then Amgen bought Immunex. They were building a big campus in Seattle, and I went down and ran the financial side of, of that project. And Skanska happened to be the contractor on the project. And I got to know um, the people. And I got to know, you know, I also was doing a bunch of um, third party estimating on public projects. And I'd been negotiating numbers with the GCs, including Skanska. So I got to know a bunch of folks at the company. And I really enjoyed the people. Um, and there was a chief estimator there by the name of Kurt Burks. And he, I always thought I could learn from him. I, I, I've always thought it was important when I've had the option that I could control where I wanted to move um, to that I wanted to work for people that I can learn from. And I always admired Kurt and thought I could learn from him. Um, so he called me one day and I was down in Orange County um, and at the airport and he said, did you want to come, did I want to come and join them? Um, and I was going through my green card process at the time um, and I didn't want to put it at risk so I just told them that um, I couldn't um, I couldn't move at this time uh, I was interested but it would have to be he said well just call me when you're ready 
So about a year later, I called him, and he's one of these guys who's really hard to get hold of. And I got his voicemail, and I said, "Hey, Curtis Allen, um, just quit my job at Davis Langdon. I'm coming to join you. I'll be there in two weeks. Give me a call. Tell me how much you're going to pay me." <laughs> and that, that, that literally was a voicemail I left, and he called Brilliant. me back a couple of hours later and said, "Cool, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Don't worry about the money." Um, and I. And I joined Skanska 16 years ago, and I've stayed because of the people. Brilliant. The people hey, are just awesome. I, I love the uh, the direct approach. <laughs> you obviously uh, you didn't you didn't <laughs> mellow it too much. <laughs> no, not at all. Brilliant. Uh, but yeah, I, I get that. I mean, speaking with uh, Steve Stouthammer and Will Center and everybody that, that we deal with in the, in the Skanska team, there is a thing that they do hire good people. Um, I know it's 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 an easy cliche to say that we hire good people, but Good, smart, tuned-in people. Um, I've, I've, I've spoken to a lot in Skanska, head of any other company, so I can see why you did that. And then, obviously, you, you were able to grow. I mean, it's all well in being, being able to work with smart people. Um, you got to be at that level yourself, and then to be able to grow within that team, you, there was obviously something special about you. Um, how was that process? Because you, you did grow fairly quick in the 16 years. Yeah, so... When I joined, I joined to work, you know, as I said, I, I joined to learn Kurt and some of the other folks. And within a year of me joining, Kurt had got, um, had taken over the West Coast for Skanska. So he started going on the road a lot and I started taking on more responsibility in the department. Um, and then a year after that, in 2008, he got the, the national um leadership role which Steve Stouthammer's now in so he was gone all the time so I had to um, learn very fast to, to step up um, and another gentleman by the name of Eric Kemp um, him and I were interviewed for the vice president role in 2009 and he got the role um, and it was it was humbling at the time um, but it, probably one of the best things that's happened because I, I, in retrospect, I wasn't ready for the role. Um, and he, so he was coming in from the operation side and I was with the pre-construction side. So he had a, he had a tough first day where he had to, you know, I'd lost and he had won and he had to win me over the first day. And, and what he said to me was, I want to build a department that attracts clients to us, both internal and external. I don't want, I don't want people to be told they have to use our service. I want them to use our service because they believe it adds value and it, it makes their job easier and better. And I've always thought that was very clever. Um, it's, it's a, you know, I've always tried to um, think about that as how do I keep making the, our, our group better, our service stronger? How do we attract clients to us? Um, and so I worked with Eric for 10 years or so. Um, and he's, he's, him and I often come to the same answer, but we come at it completely different ways. So we had, we had to learn our personalities and how to um, get to the, the right answer or how to, how to communicate together. And we became a, a pretty good team together, um, enjoyed working with each other and challenging each other. Um, and then I, I think in terms of my own growth, I've always been someone who has been honest with our clients. Um, if, if if they have a project that they can't meet the budget, let's have a conversation 
about what the options are. But let's let's not take them down the road of saying that they can afford something they can't, or they're not going to get it in the time period they're looking for. Let's be honest um, and and talk about what we can do and what the issues at hand. And I think that's always held me in good stead. Is is I think I have a reputation for just being honest and straightforward. And you know, sometimes you might not like the news, but you know, I care about our projects. I'm going to help you get there. Yeah, and to get to getting to where you need to be, you got to be honest and transparent. There's no point in wasting time and 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 some cases pre-construction months and, and years in, in pre-construction on something that's not going to ever come to fruition or, or not going to be able to able to build it. And then the relationship between between yourself and Eric, um, you mentioned about pre-construction data within ScanScan. I know Stephen Will mentioned it on their their podcast, but it was pretty evident that you were kind of part of the visionary team or, or one of the visionaries that, that, that decided, right, this is the way we're going to go down. This is the route that we're going to go down. Can you talk about the early days of that? The reason I ask that, there's so many contractors, small, mid, large contractors all over the US now, knowing the pre-construction data is, if they haven't already started it, they know that it's going to be crucial. Um, you guys have got a, a head start for me on, on almost everyone. Eight or nine years ago, you had this idea that pre-construction data was going to be so important. Walk us through that that kind of thought and, and, and process. The, the interesting piece of it is that, you know, we just talked about being honest with clients and um, if you need to deliver bad news, deliver bad news. You need to, when you give a client an opinion of cost, it needs to be based on something. You need to, it needs to be believed. And to be believable, you need the data to back it up, right? So there's one thing to say, hey, I think this. There's another thing to say, here's five similar projects, and here was the outcome of those. You go from having an opinion to being, being an expert. And when you, you can get to that point of being an expert, People trust you, right? And you can start moving forward. So we had all these projects that we were doing throughout the country and we were capturing no data, right? So you're learning new every single time. And we started, you know, more and more clients were saying, well, what does that building cost? Or what does that building cost? We never really had a structured system for capturing the data. And we decided as a, as a kind of national group that we needed to have a benchmarking system. And I think the initial concept was we want to know how, some, how much something costs. We very quickly came to the, to the realization that you're never gonna equal, equalize what something in national costs from something in San Francisco, from something in Chicago. The type of construction, the cost of construction, the way that it's procured, the available labor, union, non-union, etc. You just you can never equalize it. And we came to we came to an approach very early on that we we're going to capture data. We weren't necessarily going to capture cost. So we're going to capture, for instance, if we're talking about the K-12 schools, we're going to capture the relationship between number of classrooms and number of restrooms. We're going to capture the floor to floor heights. We're going to capture how much exterior facade there is per square foot of, um, of building. And in capturing those, that data, we can start to build reliable 
conceptual cost estimates, right? Because I think that's that's one of the most important things is to get a reliable number as early as you can. And the only way to do that is to have benchmark data upon which you can start a conversation with the design team about, you know, how much concrete should be in the foundations, what should we assume, how many pounds of steel in the superstructure. So we started to build a list of what these potential um, data items were. I, mean, I, think we, I think we now have about 400 or 450 pieces of data that we capture on every single project. Um, and then we, we have it in a database system that we can sort and present very clearly. And the 480, obviously you didn't start with, with 480 data points. Um, what, what, how many did you start with? And, and those data points, did you go back um, through historical bids or, or did you just go, right, we're starting from here and we're going to move forward? We actually came up with, the, when we rolled it out, we, we had the 450 pieces of data in it and we haven't changed that since we started. Wow. Um, and that's been, and we have gone back, we went back about seven or eight years um, and captured important projects that we thought would be important to be in, in the system. But the method of capturing the information, um, it was really important that we came up with some rules to say the data is captured in this way because we, you know, we have 150 people in our group and they're all captioned. They all want to do it their own way. And, and we came up with a set of rules and said, this is the rules to make the information reliable. It's got to be, all be captured in the same way. And, and we, we go through a lot of QA, QC to make sure that the data is correct and makes sense. Um, because it, once you have a couple of outliers that are obviously wrong, it skews all the data. Yeah. Now, and Alan, you, you know as well as I know, that's that's a serious investment, even for a company the size of Skanska, because there's a lot of time and effort and, and a lot of senior people spending time doing this and, and, and organizing this. Um, what was the key kind of sell for, for senior executives or leadership to be able to say, no, this is the way to go. This We have to do this. I think there was a real, I think there was, there was two um, moments of realization for the company. One was the fact that we had all this data and we weren't using it. And here's a format that we can capture it. And everybody was on board with that. And then when we started rolling out um, Skanska Metrics as, as a product, people just loved it. And, and you know, our business development team, our clients, um, it really is a differentiator for us um, and I think so I think it was twofold what one of the big pieces that one of the big hurdles we had to get over was how do you present the information because you have these folks who are very technical in terms of estimators pre-construction folks but then you've got to present it in a manner that clients can understand and easily trust it um, so that there was a lot of time invested in in graphics and how to present this information in a very simple format. Brilliant. And it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, is that Power BI you guys used to, to present it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's Power yeah. BI. And it, you know, it, it's interesting. We, we, when we go and present numbers to clients, normally our marketing team has, come, has helped us sell the project. And they do a very great job of a very polished product. And then pre-construction is the first ones through the door, right? And you've got to give this confidence that that they have hired what they have seen in this very glossy marketing document. So 
we had to bring our um, work product up to that level. So we brought in our marketing team, our branding team, to really help us develop some products and some deliverables that were of that um, quality. Brilliant. A proper collaborative approach. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, how powerful has it been? I mean, you're now seven, eight years into it to, to, to having started it. How powerful is it now when you go and sit with a client? Um, and I would imagine a lot of it's repeat business, but new clients, are they like blown away or are they like, this is something we need? Yeah, it, it's a lot of our clients are, are very interested in it, right? It, you know, what starts as a kind of presentation becomes a discussion because at some point during the presentation, we'll, we'll hit on something that they're interested in. And then we just dive right in. And it's a live, um, it's a live file. So we, we can pull up um, different projects that we've done and, and, and get into them. And it becomes a conversation about their project as opposed to the software. And that's exactly where we're trying to go. Yeah. And it comes back to that question that you and Eric sat down and discussed. Um, it's about building something that clients want to use and, and they want to come to us because they know they're only going to get it here. Absolutely. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's one, it's, it's one tool that we have that is, is very powerful and differentiates us, but it's, it, it's how you use that information to build the initial cost model and be able to present it to the teams that they have trusted with you and you can start drive a project forward. Yeah. And Alan, back then, seven, eight years ago, pre-construction was an estimating was, I mean, some people say it's still a necessary evil, but it, it right now it's it's held in so much high regard in, in the whole process. And I mean, it's so important. Uh, I know what, not, not every company kind of re relies on pre-construction, but anybody that's thinking further down the line, the biggest decisions are made within pre-construction um, and pre-construction tech can help us build the, the, the buildings that we need bigger, better and safer. Um, has it always been Skanska's idea that pre-construction was going to be invested in? That was the most important part um, because, I mean, it, they must have been one of the first to, to invest so much time and money in, in, in such a, a techno technology. The, the company's leadership sees pre-construction as a differentiator. Um, done, done well, it, it can do several things. It can really drive a project forward. It can set a client up for success, but also it can set Scanscale up for success. Right? It means that we, we're preparing a plan as to how we're actually going to execute a project and be successful with a project. And if we can concentrate during pre-construction of, of developing a plan that makes the client successful. Everything else has a tendency to fall in place. So the company has put a lot of resources into our technology capabilities, into capturing data, um, and you know, we're, we're, there's a lot of things that we're working on in terms of the next level. You know, from a point of view of capturing schedule information, from a point of view of capturing. Um, QAQC issues with, with design documents and, and um, we, we've recently um, really looked at how we're procuring work to make sure that we're consistent procuring work across the country as well. So really mm -hmm. a consistent work product. 
And that, that was my next question. You beat me to it. What, what's pre-construction technology? There's always new shiny tools running around the, the market. Um, startups telling them, telling us they can do this, that, and the other. What, is there anything out there that's, you know, you, you're thinking this, this could be another game changer um, and without, without giving away any state secrets or any company secrets? There's a couple. Uh, they're, they're, I'm looking forward to um, being able to use the intelligence that we have in Skanska Metrics, feeding it into a model of running different um, solutions for a project and being able to see that both visually and from a, a cost point of view. So I'm really interested in that. I think the second one is um, just being able to run some software over the top of design models and seeing where there's clashes, where there's um, pieces that are incomplete. Um, because I think that that's a, that having the ability to do that and give our, um, our construction team a, a more coordinated set of documents take some pressure off them in the field. Um, and I think trying to take some workload off them is extremely important as well. Brilliant. Yeah, I love it. Because there's a lot of talk about machine learning and BIM models and assemble. Um, and I think there's very few that have got it right. I think it will take time um, to get it 100% right. But as you say, if you've got the data um, collected already, seven, eight years of it, um, your model's got more of a chance of, of success. Absolutely. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so let's. Uh, we did hear from Stephen Will on the on the East Coast. What's the plans for Skanska West Coast? You're over um, quite a big region. What guys are you going? What What are you guys going after? What's the plans for growth? Uh, what's exciting you? Well, so I have Seattle, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. Um, Seattle is going gangbusters. Lots of the the tech companies are here. They're growing dramatically. Um, there's, there's a lot of work, you know, Seattle over the last 10 years has gone from a provincial, provincial town to an international city. It's a gateway to Alaska, it's a gateway to Asia. Um, a lot of big companies are based here, Microsoft, Amazon, Starbucks, Costco, obviously significant port, um, bringing in material, um, goods from Asia. And then we, we have a lot of companies coming in on the back of them, such as the Googles, Facebooks, Apples of the world, looking to pick up some of those folks. So the city has grown dramatically, a much more um, denser city. You see a lot more high rises going up. So everything looks rosy here for the moment. Um, and we have a very um, significant presence here. Traditionally, we are one of the top one or two GCs in town on, on an annual basis. Backlog is really strong, um, got some really great people. Um, so we're a well-oiled machine here. Um, LA and San Francisco, we're more developing our, our offices and our um, teams down there. We have some really great people. Um, we focused over the last four or five years on really hiring local great experience um, and supplementing them with folks like myself who, who understand Skanska have the um, have the history, have the connections within the company to help out the local folks, um, bringing in processes, protocols, um, and just how we do things at Skanska, Skanska values. Yeah. Right? Who, who we are as a company, who we are as people. Um, so we brought those, uh, those kind of two groups together and we're starting to um, build some really great projects down there. Um, we have our commercial development team in, in LA and we have our civil team in LA um, and they're 
we have three sites um, for a commercial development um, group. We're, we're continuing to look at more. Um, and we have groups doing healthcare, um, aviation work, higher ed work, and um, commercial development, commercial office work. So the group is, is growing. Um, we have a, a nice pre-con team there. Um, we're looking to add a couple of members to, the, to that. And then I just took over San Francisco in December um, and start to learn who, who the folks are there and um, what we're doing. And, and San Francisco seems to have a really, I think it's you know three or four years ahead of our, our LA team. Um, they're, they're pretty well-oiled machine as well, right? So, so um, some really good people. Um, again, just honest, hardworking, folks um, willing to really think about what's best for the client. Um, we have some good new projects there, um, some tech clients there that um, are providing us with some nice work. So they're growing. You know, we want to get the LA and San Francisco up to the, you know, slowly but controlled up to the where Seattle and their Portland teams are. Um, so it's really great growth opportunity for us, probably one of the best opportunities for growth throughout the company is in California. Brilliant, I love it. Um, and something I'm, I'm always interested in, obviously running my own firm here at Niche SSP, is management styles. Um, we talked a bit off air before we came on about your own management styles, and I'm sure you're like me, you just learn from people who've managed you, what you like, what you dislike. Um, I mean, you've obviously taken on now San Francisco. I mean, I'm sure that's added more to your plate. How do you manage so many people and, and keep everyone keep everyone honest, keep everyone happy and build then a successful team? I mean, me and you, me and you love a sports analogy. It's like building a football team. Like you can't have 11 uh, Tom Brady's or Ali McCoy's or Henrik Larson's. You need, you need a bit of this and a bit of that to make the, the, the soup nice or that the, there needs to be certain chemistry. Um, how do you do? How do you go about that? Several, several ways. Um, when I'm hiring folks, um, I very seldom get involved in the hiring unless it's at the at the top of the tree. Um, I let my people hire their teammates. Um, I make sure that if you know our precon directors are hiring our precon engineers or senior precon engineers, that our existing precon engineers get to meet those folks. Um, ahead of hiring them um, so that they're bought into who they're going to be sitting alongside and their teammates. And we're, we're very vested in our, our intern process program where we look to bring in our interns, you know, either one or two years before they graduate, have them continue to be part of our team, invite them along to events, and then hire them and start to grow them up organically um, in, in the company. And that's been really successful in Seattle. Uh, probably a third of our team has come through that approach. Um, and then we're starting that process in LA um, and also in San Francisco. So growing people that way. And then I think it's my job to throw people in the deep end and give them the opportunity to be successful and learn their way. And I, I, I'm not a big fan of, of completely guiding people down the path. I want them to learn what the path is. And I kind of watch and monitor and push them and 
give them a little bit of advice, but you know, I wait till they are starting to drown a little bit before I put the hand down and, and help them and then throw them out, help them out and then throw them back in. Um, so really giving people the opportunity to grow. And I think if I can make my people successful, then I'll do pretty well myself. So I'm concentrating on, on my folks. I sit down with each of my direct reports for 30 to 45 minutes every week just to catch up and see how they're doing. Sometimes we talk about projects, sometimes we talk about their family, but I just get to know them better and they get to know me better and it creates a more open relationship. It's really, really helped with our, um, you know, when you look at our survey results of people believing that they're getting good feedback on where their career's going, of what their next steps are, on how they're being perceived throughout the company. So I think it's it's been a great approach that we're looking to expand on. Brilliant. Exciting times. So Alan Dunbar, you're working flat out for Scanscon in the West Coast. What do you do to relax? Because um, it sounds as if you've got your, your plate full. Yeah, definitely. Um, try and travel as much as I can. If we were just in Maui for a week, um, end of end of January, it was just fantastic. You know, being able nice. to walk along the beach in January is not something you get to do too often when you're from Scotland. Um, <laughs> and it was it was beautiful. It was just it was you know, left email at home, um, played some golf, you know, ate some great food, and just spent time with the family. Brilliant! Can't beat it. Have you got a big family, Alan? No, I don't actually. It's only myself, my wife, and, and my mother-in-law over here. Um, being, you know, all my family's back in homeland. Um, my mother-in-law's um, Korean. She came over um, from the Korea, from Korea in the seventies, so her family's back there. And then my wife is um, one of two daughters. The other one's in London. Um, but so it's, we have a very small, compact family. So. Lovely. Yeah. Very nice. Um, there's nothing better than walking on a beach in January, I can tell you. I, I, I feel your pain as an Irish man. Uh, we're not used to it. My uh, white skin doesn't last very long out there. Yeah, uh, I, I, have, I have shades of pink, is <laughs> what I think I have. Yeah, it's just uh, it's part of the course. Uh, well, listen, Al, thank you very much. This has been incredible. I'm really looking forward to getting this out to, to the audience. Um, just if there is anyone out there, what's the best way to, to, to just looking to contact you? What's the best way to get you? Probably through LinkedIn, um, yeah. I think. Um, you can just send an email to me through that. Um, also, you know, start to, um, if we can post my email address on with the podcast, that'd be fantastic as well. Wonderful. We will do, Alan. Well, listen, for everyone here at the Pre-Construction Podcast, thank you very much. Thank you. Great. Great to be with you. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that chat with Alan Dunbar. That's three incredible episodes we've now recorded with Skanska employees and, and their leadership. Um, and the, the, the story and the journey that they've gone through with pre-construction data is, is really it's insightful. Um, as always, Alan is very open, very collaborative. If you have any questions, I will detail his LinkedIn profile down below. Feel free to reach out to him. Um, and listen, keep supporting the podcast. Keep getting it out there. Keep speaking to your friends and your peers. Um, and hopefully we'll get the word out on the importance of pre-construction within commercial construction. Thanks again, and we'll speak to you soon.